Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Smart and Safe Small Business Podcast. I am Alex Oxford from Tax Valet, and I'm here with Kyle Brame, who is a state and local tax attorney with over a decade of experience in assisting clients with tax controversy. He's worked within uh, the Big Four accounting firm, PwC, and is now within one of the largest state tax controversy practices in the Midwest at Fredrickson and Byron. Did I say that correctly? That's correct. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Kyle. I know that you have a wealth of experience in the sales and use tax space. Where are you calling from? Um, I am from my, uh, my kitchen at home. So um, if you hear kids start screaming or pounding on things, uh, apologies in advance, but you've got, like everyone else, unique work arrangements right now. So unique work arrangements indeed i don't think anyone will hold it against you uh we're all <laughs> what are we we we're 10 months into this uh covid pandemic so um uh i think we're all used to that well let's uh let's start off with talking about who is your ideal client who do you typically work with um yeah sure so i mean i've worked with fortune 5 companies and i've worked with individually owned llc's that make less than a million dollars a year. So um, what I found out is that every situation is unique in its own way. Um, and regardless of company size, there can be some really incredibly interesting indirect tax issues that come up. So, so my ideal client, I guess, is one with an interesting or challenging state tax issue that's looking for a partner to help them resolve the issue. Um, also add that a number of my closest friends are my clients. So um, I love working with people that I enjoy being around. I think we spend way too much time working generally, and um, especially if we're not enjoying the company of the people that we're working with. So. Absolutely. I say the same thing about our clients and employees and our partners. Life's too short to um, not have fun while you're working. So, you know, tell me about a type of problem that you see pretty frequently that you help your clients solve. Or maybe, maybe there is no uh, frequent problem because everything's unique. It's, you know, there's a broad base of things, but um, I guess one specific problem would be um, sales and use tax risk analysis and mitigation. So especially within the context of M&A transactions, um, whether it be a company preparing to sell, the parties within the due diligence process, um, or the buyer who has now inherited a sales tax liability. Um, my team and my firm work extremely hard to best position our clients to resolve those issues and the best manner possible. So. so let's take it from the seller's perspective. Uh, I am, let's say, an e-commerce business. I'm looking to sell my business and I'm concerned about the risks um, that, my, that selling my business might pose to a buyer and I'm concerned that it might impact the valuation process. What are some symptoms that I may or may not even be aware of um, that indicate that I might have a problem? Well, I mean, first, you've already kind of identified one of them, which is, and I don't know if it's really as so much a symptom or more so the cause, which is that they're inquisitive um, into selling their company in the first place, because without that, you don't, you know, the, the issue doesn't often get highlighted, it can go undiscovered for a long time, you start looking into those things. And all of a sudden, it's, it's an issue that, um, that is at the forefront, because you're looking at 
as the process of going through diligence, you're going to have issues that come up. You're going to go out and try to get tax clearance certificates. You're going to um, go through the diligence process with um, a, a somewhat adversarial party. Um, so those things are discovered just as a result of the fact that you're inquisitive in the first place. Um, and then second, I think um, if, you're a, if you're in a seller's position, if you have sales activity or purchase activity um, in a state where you're not filing, um, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big red flag. So um, it used to be that you, you can take these positions around, I don't have nexus, um, you know, from an income tax perspective or from a sales tax perspective, and you could go on and not have to worry about it. But in our current environment, that's just not the case. So I think just the fact that you have sales activity in a state um, can, to a large degree, um, create the kind of red flags or exposure that um, companies can tend to get in trouble with um, and get identified through diligence. So in your experience, do you find that these issues come up more frequently uh, during the sale process? like when that when the transaction's happening and you're being called in to clean it up or because we have an inquisitive and thoughtful business owner who's trying to dot all of his I's and cross his T's before he begins selling. Uh, what do you see more frequently? It's a mixed bag. Um, I wish I saw the latter situation more. Um, you know, if I'm thinking about some like common mistakes that people make, I'd say A1A is waiting too long to get things in order. Um, so, you know, I, I wish that we were brought in um, by a company that's looking to sell and trying to get prepared for that because that's just, that's, that's not always the case. And it's a heck of a lot more difficult once a buyer, once you've engaged with a buyer and you're trying to get all those things accomplished um, to get them accomplished. So. So I'm glad that you mentioned uh, one of the common mistakes that businesses make. So what are some other common mistakes that businesses make when they are trying to clean up historical exposure um, for selling their business? Maybe if they're trying to do it on their own. Sure. Um, so I think, um, like I mentioned, the first is just waiting too long to address the issues. Uh, I mean, I guess going into that a little bit more um, as part of either a stock or an asset deal, um, I'm advising buyers to either set up an escrow for a potential liability or to obtain tax clearance certificates from a seller. Now, knowing that the buyer should typically come in with those types of, of demands, my advice to sellers is to resolve the issue while you still hold all the cards. Um, cutting a check to an escrow account that buyers can access um, at will just incentivizes buyers to approach things like voluntary disclosure agreements with a different risk benefit in mind than the seller would have. So for example, you as a seller um, may not feel like paying an attorney to come in and complete a VDA to mitigate $2,000 in tax liability um, because of, you know, you're going to have to pay the liability. You're going to have to pay the, it, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Right. Um, but a buyer would be able to escrow that escrow or would be able to access that escrow for the $2,000 in liability and also for the legal fees to resolve it. So their, their risk benefit is totally different than what a seller's would be. So, you know, attack the issue early where it makes sense to do so. And then, re you know, perhaps reduce the overall escrow amount or, you know, agree to a, a reduced, uh, 
purchase price that's significantly reduced from, from or uh, increased, I guess, from where it would be if you took an offset for everything. Um, but don't rely on somebody else to protect your interests as a seller when they're playing with, to them, other people's money. And then I think the second, the big kind of area is people just getting sloppy. Um, so <clears throat> I've seen companies that are so interested in getting a deal done um, that they're willing to move forward without things like tax clearance certificates. Um, and perhaps the messiest situation that I saw, a liability wasn't disclosed during diligence, no clearance certificates were provided. And then the day after the escrow period had lapsed, the seller filed for bankruptcy, which left the buyer with a significant liability as a result of successor liability and no real manner of recourse. Um, so don't get sloppy because you're in a hurry to get something done. Um, do things the right way. Always. Absolutely. So, uh, going off script here, but I'm curious because you did mention asset purchase agreement as a seller, your, do you have any quick thoughts on will asset purchase agreements help protect you and the, well, will it help protect, uh, the purchaser from, sales tax risk because we see a lot of e-commerce businesses selling their assets instead of selling their entities and um, frequently I hear well if I do an asset purchase agreement the buyer doesn't have to worry about sales tax and <laughs> we don't it, it just doesn't become an issue for us what's your perspective on that um, typically if you're purchasing assets and, and there's a liability attached to those assets especially if you're purchasing all or substantially all the assets of a business you're going, you as a buyer are going to incur successor liability as a part of that transaction, i.e. The, the liability that is, is part of that business pre-sale is going to flow to you. You're going to have that successor liability. Um, there's Even ways if it's a to, different entity. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely ways to limit that. Um, a lot of states, if you provide notice that you're going through a bulk sale transaction, and you would, in, you would obtain a tax clearance certificate from the state saying there's no liability attached to those, those assets, then yeah. Um, but asset deals, I think, are generally, from, from a tax perspective, messier than a, the, than a stock deal. Um, first, you have the flow of, of assets in and of itself. So now, do you or do you not qualify for a state's bulk or occasional sale exemptions or is all the stuff you're buying now just the purchase of tangible goods that's subject to tax in and of itself. Um, so that's an issue. I think there's issues that come up around, um, you know, are, what does all or substantially all mean? Is it based on a division? Is it based on a company? Um, so there's, I, I think there's a great degree of variance from one state to the next and you really need to be diligent about the deal itself. Um, and then also I think that that's a huge trap uh, in terms of the, the successor liability attached to the assets. A lot of people think, oh, hey, as long as I'm, I'm just purchasing stuff, right? So I don't have to worry about things like what, you know, what type of liability did the, the, the previous entity have? Um, and you can get yourself into a world of hurt um, as a buyer um, by not protecting yourself in that situation or assuming that it doesn't exist. 
That's fascinating because I've heard it on both sides almost every week. You know, oh, it's an asset purchase agreement. Who cares? It's all going to be fine. And I always keep my mouth shut because it's like, ah, I'm not an attorney. I'm also not a business broker and I don't deal with these things. So, um, you know, go talk to someone who knows. And, and for all of you listeners out there, the someone who knows is Kyle. So he'd be a great person to talk to if you're wondering if you're selling a business, if you're buying a business, um, how should you structure the deal to mitigate successor liability and all the other tax liabilities that could get wrapped up in that yeah i'm sure there's so many things here besides sales tax that i'm sure you could uh help educate people on but there's there's a lot that goes into a transaction so moving on um you know what is one free action that you think the audience can implement now that will help them uh, when it comes to mitigating risk when selling their business maybe they can't do it now but they can do it if they're thinking about selling their business yeah, I, I think one thing that I would just recommend um, that, that most companies can do, and it, it does, it's not that it doesn't take work, but most companies are in a position that, that they can start thinking about how to attack it, is to come up with a process for retaining exemption certificates. Um, so if you're making sales that you feel are exempt, um, and, the, and your, your customer is saying these are exempt sales for whatever the reason might be, purchase for resale, um, sales to government entities, whatever it might be. Um, come up with a process for retaining those things in an orderly fashion so that you can go into the due diligence phase knowing that you can produce those things upon request because that's an area where buyers can absolutely beat up sellers um, when you can't prove that out. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been in those transactions where as a buyer, um, you know, we're being told by the seller, well, these are all exempt. They're sales for resale. Um, these are wholesale transactions. So they're exempt. And it's like, prove it um, because I, I'm going to have to um, go to the state and prove that out if I come under audit. So either you need to prove it or you need to, to um, pay it for it. So my recommendation to a seller is make sure you can prove it so you don't have to pay for it. Yep. All you need to do is begin collecting exemption certificates uh, from, let's say, your resellers, organize it, make a spreadsheet, and have an assistant go through it once a year at least, and uh, you're going to be better off than probably 90% of the businesses out there, and you can avoid the risk of um, a huge liability uh, being recognized during the sale process because we've seen this come up. We've, we've definitely seen this come up. And when um, we deal with audits or when we're doing filings, we always ask our clients, like, do you have the exemption certificates? Like, I believe you when you sold it to Walmart, that Walmart was reselling it and not using, you know, 10,000 clipboards, but (laughs) we need the exemption certificate to prove it. And I think a lot of companies just assume, well, I can always just get that information later. Well, one year later becomes two and two becomes 10 companies come and go like dust in the wind and um, points of contact come and go like dust in the wind. And then it becomes very difficult or impossible to get this information and you're left with money that you have to pay someone. So it's not fun. Um, all right. And what is a resource that you would direct listeners to, to help them mitigate the, the risk, uh, uh, the sales tax risk of selling their business? Um, I think just a, a good resource that we're continuing to build um, is through, through my firm's website. Um, so at, at the beginning of this whole pandemic created shutdown, um, a colleague of mine, Masha Yeltsin, um, was pretty prophetic um, on how this would change the way that we all functioned. 
um, you know, at a time when nobody had really stopped going to work on a day-to-day basis, she had told me that things were going to shut down um, and this was going to last for a while. Um, and she mentioned that the conferences and the way that people were getting their continuing education credits were likely going to be canceled and that we should start thinking about putting together something to, you know, help our, our clients, our friends um, make up for those, you know, replace those events. So as a result, uh, my colleagues and I spent an extraordinary amount of time putting together this Fredrickson State Tax Webinar Series, um, which commenced with a, a tax administrator panel back in April um, and has touched on a variety of things, including a sell-side M&A session um, throughout the past eight months. Um, our next session is actually going to be the ninth in the series, um, and it takes place this Thursday afternoon. Um, and it's going to take a potpourri format related to income tax issues. So um, I encourage people to go out. Um, if you can go to the fredlaw.com website, it's fredlaw.com slash events. It'll direct you right there. Um, you can also see recorded versions of all the past sessions um, by going to fredlaw.com slash state dash tax dash webinars. Or else, I mean, frankly, just by Googling Fredrickson state tax webinars, you'll find it. Um, but that's a really good resource. You can see some of the past things and specifically related to the sell side of an A um, session that was myself, another tax person and one of our deals attorneys that does all the, you know, negotiating of the PA and all that stuff. Um, it's not one stuff there. Well, very good. We will have a link in the description and in the blog post where you are watching this video. So last question here, what's one question that I should have asked you uh, that would be of great value to our audience and the answer please. Um, maybe you've asked me this offline before, um, but I guess I'd say, you know, it's the question that people ask me the most often at this point, um, which is what are the primary differences between working at a big four public accounting firm, um, and working at a large law firm? Um, you know, I spent a decade working on state tax issues for one of the big four. Um, and last year, end of 2019, made the move over to a law firm. Um, first, the move was almost exclusively the result of my friendship with, with Masha Yeselman, um, who is without question the top state tax litigator in the Twin Cities. Um, and I just, you know, I thought about it and I thought, you know, I realized that teaming up with, with Masha allowed me to more fully and completely represent my client's interests um, in a law firm than I was able to in public accounting. Um, our team can represent clients throughout the full controversy lifecycle um, in areas I worked like before, um, like state tax audits. Um, but we can also work up to and including, you know, all of the other phases of controversy, you know, up to including appeals, litigation, et cetera. Um, in addition, we can protect our clients' interests through invoking inter attorney-client privilege, which is a big deal, um, especially as we talk about preparing um, for diligence and all those types of things. Being able to do that under the protection of privilege is huge. Um, so, you know, I think that's a really important dis dis distinction between the two. Um, I think, you know, ultimately we all have roles in helping clients, right? Um, and, um, you know, just like clients wouldn't want me filing tax returns for them, um, there are spaces where tax attorneys are the appropriate people to advocate for clients. And, I, you know, I think. I met you because you reached out in an issue where you thought a tax attorney needed to be involved. And that was the right party to get involved on that. Um, I think that recognition is, is more rare than it is common. 
I think a lot of people in our space tend to say, I can do absolutely everything. But mm-hmm. I, I also think it's, it's critical to, in, in providing superior client service, to understand that the roles that we're best at and understand the areas where our partners are better positioned to provide the services that are really needed. So absolutely. Right you, you, you missed the most important part, though. When you stop working for a public accounting firm, you're no longer uh, uh, <laughs> You don't have a slave driver and you're not being beaten and whipped by uh, chains every <laughs> night, right? Um, well, you know, I, I worked for a wonderful, wonderful partner um, at PwC in Sue Hatfield, who is, you know, nationally recognized um, and just like a delightful human being. So um, I, I have nothing but the best things to say about, about my boss during my time there. Um, so. All right. Well, you got it easy. We've got a lot of uh, accountants that we've hired from the big four and they're like, wow, you're telling me I could go home before 8 p.m. Like, this is crazy. So um, well, glad you narrowly escaped that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kyle. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Perfect. Thanks, Alex.